This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and opinions that will probably piss you off. Listener discretion is advised. Despite Colorado being just a stone's throw away from the salty desert wasteland I grew up in, I don't know much about it. When someone mentions Denver, my thoughts immediately jump to legal weed and mushrooms. To go along with their drugs, they have some other odd traditions. Frozen Dead Guy Days is a festival that started in 2002 after a Norwegian man shipped his cryogenically frozen grandpa to the States. Though he first took up residence in California, he was brought to Naderland, Colorado in 1993 and currently resides in a tough shed. The people of Naderland celebrate this guy by doing all kinds of fun things, including coffin races and a hearse parade. Colorado is also known for having a lot of vast wilderness and national parks. More than a third of their land is owned by the federal government. And surprisingly, They are home to the only federal supermax prison in the U.S. It's known as the Alcatraz of the Rockies. Some names you may recognize who are living out their days at ADX Florence include El Chapo, Jokar Sarnayev, and Ted Kaczynski. Why does this motherfucker keep popping up everywhere I look? Colorado has abolished the death penalty several times, the most recent being in 2020. Much like the rest of the U.S., Colorado has gone through phases with executions. It started with hanging, but as technology progressed, they implemented the gas chamber and eventually lethal injection. The first execution on record here is from 1859. A Hungarian man by the name of John Stoffel was hung for the murder of his brother-in-law. Both men were miners who came to the area during the gold rush. John apparently wanted to steal a bag of gold dust, and his brother-in-law had to pay with his life. He confessed to this crime and was hanged from a cottonwood tree on April 10, 1859. The most recent execution took place in 1997, and I will be covering that one in this episode. Colorado has a rich history and a variety of different crimes that ended in capital punishment. So grab your hiking boots and your weed. Let's get into the Centennial State. Depravity has been a part of the human experience far back in recorded history. I don't think there was ever a time when people didn't do fucked up things to other people. We can say that maybe it's a cultural thing in some cases, but in more recent years, people put the blame on music and violent movies. Back in the 40s and 50s, violence was common in a lot of households. A lot of that probably had something to do with men coming back from the war, being fucked up, and not really knowing how to deal with it. But violence breeds violence. Some criminals, like this first psychopath I'm going to tell you about, blame their addictions. In early December of 1943, a young mother named Anne Geist went out to a tavern to meet up with some friends and brought her three-year-old daughter Kathleen along. 
This tavern was located near Fort Logan, which was a small military installation a few miles southwest of Denver. Pinball machines were new at the time, so Anne and her friends got wrapped up in playing one and completely forgot about little Kathleen. Another patron of the bar, a man by the name of Frank Martz, was not playing pinball and took notice of the lonely little girl wandering around. Martz was a 33-year-old staff sergeant who had just returned from a trip to visit his wife in South Dakota. He approached the little girl and promised her soft drinks and a stuffed rabbit if she'd agree to come back to his apartment with him. Of course she went with him without a fight. She was three. This is why I've drilled into my kids' heads that they don't go with anyone unless they come tell me first, even if it's someone I know. No exceptions. Martz managed to take Kathleen without anyone thinking there was something wrong. The pair even passed a patrolman who assumed they were father and daughter. After arriving back at his apartment, Martz struck the little girl on the head with a blunt object before wrapping a stout cord around her neck and strangling her with it. After this, he raped her and brutalized her. The bite marks and other wounds all over her body were evidence of this. How anyone could do this to a child just baffles me. Martz would go on to blame his alcoholism and vampire stories. He'd been reading detective stories, including one about how a vampire sucked blood from a living body. This, combined with the beer and wine he'd been drinking that day, was apparently what made him snap and kill Kathleen. He claimed not to remember everything that happened, but eventually gave a partial confession, which was enough to convict him. Due to the time, most newspaper outlets were more concerned with the World War II coverage than anything else, so there aren't many articles about this case. It was appealed, but the Colorado High Court upheld both the conviction and the sentence. The day of his execution, Martz had a hearing to determine if he was in fact sane. The state didn't want to execute a crazy guy who was under the influence of vampire stories. While on death row, Martz read the Bible, of course. He spent most of his time with Father Justin McKernan. He expected a stay of execution, but when the warden showed up to his cell and read his death warrant, his face dropped. Martz was led a quarter mile up the road to Woodpecker Hill where the death chamber was located. In his hands were a crucifix and a St. Christopher medal. Frank Martz was executed by gas chamber on November 23, 1945. His last words were, God forgive me for I have sinned, I'm sorry. There is no information available online about his last meal. Special thanks to historicalcrimedetective.com for the information on this case. Took me a minute to realize that's where I was and I was pleasantly surprised. A little more than a decade after Kathleen Geist was brutally murdered, another child would lose their life at the hands of a demented bastard. On August 28, 1958, a 31-year-old man named Walter J. Hamill lured a boy 20 years his junior with the promise of an elephant ride. Wait a minute. An elephant ride? Oh yeah, Hamill was a circus animal trainer. People had interesting jobs back in the day. Anyway. Hamill lured 11-year-old Lester Brown II and strangled him to death. I'm thankfully unable to find a whole lot of gory details about this crime, 
but it was apparently sexually motivated. Hamill claimed to be insane to try to get out of the death penalty, but it was pointless. He was put to death by gas chamber on May 25, 1962. It was his request that his eyes be used to give sight to the blind, and his corneas were removed for transplant shortly after his death. A few episodes ago, I talked about women who were put to death for doing abhorrent things. Every case I covered bothered me in some way. This next one I have for you. Well, it's fucked up, but I didn't find anyone who fit into this particular category of depraved for the Condemned Women episode. Have you heard of Rosemary West? Well, she was from the UK, but we also have female monsters here in the States. Rebecca Fincham was a lonely woman who had answered an inmate's personal ad in a newspaper. This inmate gave her address to another man named Gary Lee Davis, who was serving time for sexual assault. Fincham was caught up in a rocky marriage where her husband drank too much and she wanted someone to help her take her mind off of it. Davis sympathized with her and even flirted with her. This relationship escalated very quickly when Fincham asked Davis if he missed sex. He replied with a very blunt, hell yes, and shortly after this, the letters went from flirty to raunchy. Davis realized that Fincham talked a good game and had the experience to back it up. Apparently, she and her husband had been swingers on a West German army base and brought home a large collection of porn and sex toys when they returned to the U.S. Davis was impressed with how well Fincham kept up with his fantasies. He had met his match. He would later say, this victim in this crime was not touched by me in no way. That story I told while on the stand was to get Becky off. It was Becky's crime, not mine. This relationship continued through letters, as most prison relationships do, until Fincham came to visit Davis in prison. Upon seeing her, he was repulsed. She was obese, covered in scars, and missing her eyebrows. Go look her up, he's not lying. He thought she was absolutely disgusting and even recalled being afraid of her because she was so overweight. The only reason he didn't dump her on the spot was that she basically worshipped the ground he walked on. She took care of him while he was in prison. She visited him every weekend, even bringing her daughters along and giving him some spending money. During a visit in 1984, Davis asked her to marry him. She said yes, and they were married over the phone by a minister. That's a new one. A phone wedding. Huh. So far, Rebecca Fincham probably doesn't seem that bad to most of you listening. She was a freaky bitch, that's for sure, but that's no reason to judge. We all have our thing. She was more than just kinky, though. There was a sick puppy hiding behind all that fat and hairless eyebrows. Shortly after the wedding, another inmate became interested in Fincham's 13-year-old daughter and asked Davis if he could write to her. Neither Davis nor the girl's mother objected. In fact, Fincham made it a point to send a topless picture of herself as well as a semi-nude picture of her daughter. Thankfully, the pictures were intercepted by someone at the prison, and Fincham was charged with exploitation of a minor. Her visiting privileges were revoked as well. 
anyone who knows anything about prison or true crime is well aware that they monitor all phone calls as well as mail. This didn't stop Davis and Fincham from playing a game over the phone where he would request a fantasy for her to act out. There was a point where Davis wanted to hear her give head, so she brought a man into the house and performed oral sex on him next to the phone receiver so Davis could hear it. He was amazed that he found a woman who would say and do all the things he wanted. The fantasies the pair described to each other were the foundation of their relationship and were probably way more satisfying than the physical relationship they'd have when Davis was let out of prison in 1985. In order for Davis to be paroled to Fincham's house, she was required to send her daughters to live out of state with her parents. Can't be letting a sex offender around your kids now, can ya? Fincham herself had managed to walk away from the child exploitation charge with nothing more than three years probation. Imagine that, a slap on the wrist for taking half-naked pictures of her teenage daughter. What the fuck, Colorado? Because they were both under court supervision, the couple had to refrain from drinking and trolling for young girls to harass. This didn't last long, though, as Davis was physically repulsed by Fincham. I thought when I married Becky that I could overlook her being so fat, he wrote. She had a place for me to come out to, and I knew I wouldn't be lonely. But I was wrong. I was lonely even with her. I took up drinking again to fill the empty void in my life. Also, I drank to have the stomach to touch that fat broad. Alcohol is the best lubricant, that's for sure. Despite this fact, Davis still struggled to sleep with Fincham. They claimed that he was impotent when he was drunk, and toward the end of their relationship, he couldn't even get an erection because she grossed him out so much and he had no feelings for her. In an attempt to live out the fantasies they discussed while Davis was in prison, the couple started propositioning other residents of the apartment building they were managing. Most people turned them down, but occasionally Davis would get to watch his wife have sex with other people. His eyes wandered to another female tenant, who he'd told a friend he wanted to drug and rape. Pretty soon, the tenants of the building were sick of the couple's antics. Because of this, Fincham answered an ad looking for farmhands in a different part of Colorado. They got the job and moved to Byers. The community there was small, and Davis didn't have much choice in other women to bring into his bed. During their trips into town, the couple would talk about kidnapping women and turning them into sex slaves. Did everyone have a stick up their ass in the 80s? You'd think that with all that cocaine floating around, people would be more open to doing freaky shit. I mean, there's a whole internet full of weirdos now who are willing to be slaves. Consent is key and all that. But I wouldn't know anything about that. I'm just a girl from Utah who's been sheltered by the Zion Curtain. These people are fucking gross, though, for real. In May 1986, the couple went to a discount store and bought a 22 caliber rifle. Davis knew this was a violation of his parole, but didn't think anyone would notice. He was right. He would tell anyone who asked him that he bought the gun to take care of the many snakes on his property. Davis and Fincham would drink and cruise around Fort Morgan looking for women to drag into their escapades, but the one Davis really wanted was their neighbor on a nearby ranch, Virginia May. He talked about her and her sister-in-law, Sue McLennan, constantly, which made Fincham angry. 
On July 18, 1986, the couple targeted a woman I'm going to call Tammy. She lived on a farm in Wiggins and was approached by a woman driving a car with Kansas license plates asking for directions. The man who was also in the car got out and attempted to get behind Tammy. When Tammy's husband appeared, the man got back into their car and they drove away. They would later be identified as Gary Davis and Rebecca Fincham. Just three days later, on the last day of Davis's parole, Fincham called Sue McLennan to ask if her husband was home. Sue said that he wasn't, and Fincham offered to drop off some used clothes for Sue's children. As you can probably guess, there were no clothes. The couple showed up with a rifle in their car, but Fincham noticed a male ranch hand outside and only stayed long enough to have a glass of iced tea. Davis never left the car. Man, that's gotta be an awkward conversation. I know I said I was bringing you clothes and made sure you'd be alone, but I'm just gonna have a quick glass of tea and skedaddle. Fincham tried the same ruse on Virginia May. Later that same night, the couple showed up to Virginia's house. She came outside with her four-year-old daughter and Fincham lured her to a tool shed by saying that she needed to borrow some wire stretchers. It was at this point that Davis punched Virginia in the face and dragged her into the car while Fincham shooed Virginia's daughter into the house. The actual events of the night are disputed as both Davis and Fincham tried to paint each other as the main perpetrator. The most credible version of events is backed up by physical evidence as well as Davis's statements to his attorneys. Virginia was stripped and dragged out of the car with a rope around her neck. Davis tried to rape her but couldn't get it up. He claimed for years that he assaulted her several times but he didn't actually rape her despite trying. Virginia was then forced to perform oral sex on the ogre that Davis was married to. She fought and pleaded for her life the whole time. She even offered them a substantial amount of money to let her go. Unfortunately for her, the couple had probably decided her fate before they even showed up to her house. Davis hit her in the head with the butt of the rifle, which fractured her skull. She made a final attempt to defend herself by raising her hands up, but she was shot a total of 14 times by the couple with hollow point bullets. Defense attorneys speculated that they took turns shooting her because the locations of the gunshots seemed like the attempts of a jealous woman to disfigure her rival. Nine to the head, four to the torso, and one to the groin. Davis claimed to have been the only one taking shots. Fincham was not innocent in this, whether she fired the gun or not. Investigators searched the couple's house and found a massive collection of sex toys, pornography, and even raunchy letters that Fincham had written to her own daughter in order to keep daddy interested in her. Fincham even offered her 15-year-old daughter to Davis for sex, but he declined. If you don't mind, I'm going to take a quick break to go puke. The couple were instant suspects in this case. When Virginia's husband came home and found the children alone, the daughter who had gone outside earlier that night told him, Becky took her. Davis told the sheriff he'd consumed a case of beer that day, but the sheriff said he seemed pretty sober. Fincham did most of the talking. We want to do everything we can to help you find your daughter, she told Rod McLennan, Virginia's father. I know how you feel. I was once raped myself. 
One year and one day after Virginia's murder, a jury convicted Davis. It took them three hours to decide his fate. He'd be headed for death row. Davis shot himself in the foot by taking the stand and taking all the blame for the crime. Fincham had also been convicted and sentenced to life without parole. Davis's defense attorney argued that because she had gotten life, Davis should get the same. There it is again, another woman getting a lighter sentence than a man convicted of the same crime. What the fuck, Colorado? Davis appealed several times. Toward the end, he wanted to give up, but one of his daughters told him he wouldn't be allowed to see his grandchild unless he kept up his appeals. In 1993, Davis was moved to the Colorado State Penitentiary, which is a supermax prison. Inmates here are kept locked down 23 hours a day. Davis complained about how tightly confined he was. He said he felt like an animal in a cage and he just wanted to lay down and die. While in prison, he reconnected with estranged family members but was later hit with several losses. His father died, his son was in prison for child abuse, and one of his daughters had a fatal brain tumor. Governor Roy Romer refused to grant clemency to Davis, stating in part, There undoubtedly has been some rehabilitation of his character and his demeanor, but I do not believe that whatever remorse or rehabilitation that is displayed here justifies reaching that extraordinary event that would cause this governor to give him clemency. Gary Lee Davis was executed by lethal injection on October 13, 1997. He had no last words. His last meal was vanilla and chocolate ice cream. That's it. He asked for a cigarette as well, but there was a smoking ban in the prison, so his request was denied. The last case I'm going to cover in this episode will strike several of society's nerves. One of those that'll leave you asking why. I haven't covered a school shooting yet. Frankly, I didn't really want to. Those always seem to bring out the worst in people. But this one isn't a typical school shooting. It didn't get much coverage outside of Colorado from what I gather. It wasn't a case of mass fatalities, but it was very fucking disturbing. On September 26, 2006, at 11.40 a.m., a man in his early 50s walked into Platte Canyon High School carrying a gun and a backpack that he claimed was full of explosives. This man had a small but interesting criminal record. He'd previously been arrested for larceny, marijuana possession, and obstructing police. A student had seen this man enter the school with an angry expression on his face, but she didn't report it to the office. This old crazy dude who had no reason to be there fired a single warning shot when a teacher didn't comply with his demands. He then made his way up to the second floor and entered an honors English classroom. He fired his handgun into the ceiling and told all of the students to line up facing the chalkboard. At this point, he made all the male students leave but kept the girls inside. I'm sure you know why. All six girls who were kept as hostages were sexually assaulted. One of the survivors said she knew it was happening to the others because she could hear clothes rustling, zippers and buttons being undone, and elastic being snapped. A code white alert went out to the rest of the school and all students were to remain in their classrooms. 
Negotiations began with the gunman, and the police tried to get him to let his captives go. Rather than man up and talk to the cops himself, he forced the hostages to talk for him. Four girls were eventually released, but things intensified when it came time to talk about letting the other two go. The SWAT team, ATF, and a bomb squad were sent in. The negotiations ended with the crazed man telling the police that something is going to happen at 4 p.m. SWAT team members had seen him assaulting the remaining girls and decided to go in and rescue them by force. Sheriff Fred Wegener, whose son was in the school at the time of the incident, said, My decision was either wait and have the possibility of having two dead hostages, or act and try to save what I feared he would do to them. Because I'd want whoever was in my position to do the same thing, and that is to save lives. At 3.45pm, they blasted the door open with explosives and tried to get the girls out. The gunman used them as human shields while he fired at the police. One hostage, 16-year-old Emily Keyes, was shot in the head as she tried to escape. The man then shot himself as the police fired at him. His backpack was searched and it was found that he in fact did not have any explosives on him. A rifle was later found in a clearing near the school. I have to say, this school did a hell of a lot for their students during the aftermath of this tragedy. There were 50 counselors present when the school reopened. Teddy bears were handed out, and memorials were put up along the highway leading to the school with positive messages. Of the 460 students, only 10 were absent the first day the school was reopened. Emily's funeral service was held on September 30th. About 5,000 motorcyclists participated in the Columbine to Canyon ride, which was to honor the victims of the Columbine and Flat Canyon shootings. The school heightened their security as well, installing more cameras and leaving only one entrance door unlocked. Nothing can bring back Emily Keys. Her death was senseless and tragic. She was described by a friend as being very friendly, talkative, bright, and athletic. The pictures I've seen of her confirm that for me. I hope your soul finds some peace, Emily. I've left this murderous jackass's name out up to this point because it really isn't important. He isn't important. He was a creepy old man who used MySpace to compile a list of girls he wanted to assault. He put his demented urges before the lives of kids, even using them as human shields when he was finally caught. This man sat in his vehicle outside the school and even asked other students about the girls on his list before he went in. This guy was nasty. Dwayne Roger Morrison gave himself the death penalty on September 27, 2006. There is no information on his last words, but they were probably something disgusting. His last meal was hopefully some bullet fragments. This is normally the point where I'd tell you about the longest serving death row inmate, but since Colorado abolished the death penalty and commuted everyone's sentences to life, I don't have that option. What I will say though, is that Colorado has an oddly high number of mass shootings and juveniles who murder. The Columbine shooting was in Colorado. So was the Aurora Theater shooting. 
There was the case of Matthew John Murray, who shot and killed four people in the New Life Church in Arvada. So many others. I can't even tell you the last shooting we had in Utah. Years ago, when I worked in a mall food court downtown, there was a threat of a mass shooting. It scared me shitless, but I still went to work. Thankfully, nothing ended up happening. And I'll get into those juvenile cases more in depth at some point. I'm going to do a whole episode on it. But I have to say once again, what the fuck, Colorado? That's it for this one. I feel like I need a shower, to be honest. If you enjoyed this episode, please go check out my other ones and subscribe wherever you found me. I'm available pretty much everywhere but YouTube at this point. For anyone interested, I am on Rumble. Maybe one of these days I'll figure out some ideas for live streams. You can get me on Instagram at LastMealPod as well. First is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.